The Best of Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity, helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The Best of Times, your host, Gary Kaligas. Good morning, radio listeners. I'm Gary Kaligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only magazine for mature adults in Northwest Louisiana. Thank you for tuning into our show today and also thanking those who might be listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Also thanking those who might be listening via the Radio Pub application on their Apple and Android devices, as well as listening via the Keel application on their Apple and Android devices. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn about an interesting lady, and she is deemed one of Shreveport's forgotten heroes. So stay to the show for some very interesting information. Joining me on my show is a special guest. It's Miss Julie Stackhouse, who is a historian and author, and we're going to discuss her recent article in the July issue of The Best of Times that she wrote about an interesting person called Ada Vincent DeLay of Shreveport, and it's, it's subtitled Shreveport's Forgotten Hero. So thank you, Julie, for joining us today here on The Best of Times Radio Hour. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I want to tell my listeners, let's, let's give, them, give her a, a little extra plug. She first authored a story that appeared in The Best of Times magazine's November 2019 issue. Uh, the, the the article was discussed more than recreation, the YMCA in the early American war relief. And wow, what a bit of interesting research that uh, that you you gave us in in that particular article, which I can't remember how many words it is. It, it could have been much longer, but it was very interesting. We've had a lot of compliments, and that 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 uh, uh, article and that issue are very hard to come find now. People download it from our website, well, Julie. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. So uh, so tell our listeners, I, I know it's toward the end, but tell the listeners a little about yourself and why you why are you uh, engrossed in history and, and, and definitely the, the Shreveport and Bossier history. Well, I grew up in Shreveport. Um, I lived for a little while in another part of the country, but I'm pretty much a lifelong uh, Shreveporter until this year when I moved to Dallas for work. Um and I've always loved history. I grew up discussing history with my dad, and I've always enjoyed studying it. And I hit a place at the end of 2017 where I was unemployed and couldn't find work for several months. And I decided that, you know, my kids were grown and, you know, no time like the present. So I decided to get back to grad school and see if that would help me in terms of employment. And I'm in the Master of Liberal Arts program at LSU Shreveport. And it's a really good, flexible graduate program, and you can tailor it to study pretty much whatever you want. So I decided to study history. I wasn't planning originally to study um, Ada Vincent DeLay, who I'm writing my thesis equivalent project on. Um, but, um, and we can talk about it in a minute, I guess, how I, how yeah, I came across her name. But, um, but yeah, once I, I discovered her, I decided that this, this was my project. This was what I was going to study. Well, it was fascinating. Well, again, you never know when you might get engrossed into history and how it touches a nerve. And by the way, this article that appears in our July issue of Ada Vincent Delay is very is quite popular as well. And we've received, uh, I know Tina, Tina, my wife, the editor, has received tons and tons of complimentary uh, notes. And as well as I have received, many people have told me that article was fascinating. And we need to we need to learn more about uh, Shreveport's forgotten heroes in the area. So again, this oh, this this um, 
So I've decided to invite you on the show. That we we do this occasionally past 20 years. We bring our authors and featured writers on our on our show to give us a little lanyard, a little extra, because you know you have 800 or 1,000 words here that doesn't probably cover all the all the bases. But uh, so let me let's let's backtrack. I think you almost started. Why? How, how did you find out about her? And she was forgotten. So well, how did you find out about her? Well, I was taking one of Dr. Gary Joyner's classes um, for my graduate work at LSUS, and I was reading, yeah, he's wonderful, and I was reading one of his books that he co-authored with Dr. Cheryl White, whom you also know, Um, it's called Shreveport Historic Oakland Cemetery, and they just give little two and three page bios of a lot of notable people buried at Oakland Cemetery, which was our first um, official cemetery in Shreveport. And there was a bio in there about Aya. And like I said, it was just a little two or three page article. And I, again, having grown up in Shreveport, I'm racking my brain thinking, why have I never heard of this woman? Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't think of any streets named for her, community center schools, nothing. And I remember I just wept because I was so moved by her story. And I just thought, you know, I decided right then and there that if nobody had written her biography, that I was going to do it. And then once I got into my graduate program, and it, when it came time to choose a thesis topic, I finally concluded that, you know, there's, I, I've got to do it right now while I've got the opportunity. And so that's how I got started um, researching her and, and writing about her. Well, it's good fortune on us, on you and our readers, and uh, I think people are learning more and more about her. I mean, definitely she was forgotten. She did. We're going to talk about it. She did a lot of good things for for kids throughout the area back in the 1900s. So, um so let's let's start a little bit about her. Give it a little snippet. So who was she? Where, where when okay. did she live? She, okay. Well, Ada Vincent Delay was a socialite turned social worker. Uh, she lived from 1869 to 1933. She was the daughter of a Shreveport mayor, R.T. Vincent. He was mayor in 1890, and again from 1892 to 1895, I believe. Um, and in fact, then they elected the mayors annually. You know. So, um, wow, I didn't know that annually. Yeah, Annual. annually. Yeah, can you imagine going through that every year? No, thank you. <laughs> so, um, so, but she was a town darling. She was always in the society pages since her, her family was prominent. And uh, she was very active um, and a lifelong member at St. Mark's Episcopal. And she was um, the head of their uh, Ladies Hospital Guild, which worked with Charity Hospital and the patients that were there. And she just did a tremendous amount for her community. Her life was pretty much dedicated to, to doing for others. And uh, one other thing I thought was fascinating, she married right. She she married the delay person, right? Who was the editor of the Shreveport Times? Yes. Wow. Right. He he had moved here from Wisconsin, although um, the papers back then were very clear that he was from Southern stock. They wanted to be very <laughs> sure that, that was clear. He was not marrying just some random Yankee, right? Um, but yeah, he moved from from Wisconsin to, to Shreveport to work for the Times and became editor. Unfortunately, though, they were only married two years before he passed away. Yeah, wasn't that sad? Wow, leaving her a widow in her early 30s. Whoa. Uh, Yes, yes. And then when I remember reading in your article that her father passed away shortly after that, right? Yes, she she got hit fairly quickly with several deaths. Her husband in 1902 and then her dad in 1904. And then her mother passed away about 10 years later. Mm. So it was all kind of in quick succession. And she never remarried, right? I recall. No, she never remarried. No, and no. you know as to why she didn't. I mean, she was certainly young enough she could have, but you know, um, romantically we can think that well, he was God was the love of her life, and so she never found anyone else. 
or it could be that she was just too independent and she was too busy with her community work and just really couldn't you know be bothered with being tied down. So, what kind of social work did she do, or explain to our listeners what, what and what was she best known for? She did a lot of things. Um, she had she wore a lot of different hats in the community. The main thing that she was known for. Um, the adoption work, which we'll get into more in, in a minute, she actually wasn't as well known for until an article was published in the Shreveport Journal talking about the fact that she was placing children. Like, her friends apparently knew she did it, but they didn't know to what extent she did it. Mm. Um, so that was kind of done kind of hush-hush in, in a way for a while. Um, primarily, she was known as the Christmas tree lady, and oh, she became yes. known as that because she would, um, through the hospital guild that she worked with at St. Mark's, she would organize um, a gift distribution um, to patients, or as they were called back then, inmates, which I always find fascinating that patients were called inmates back in that day. Um, <laughs> but she would say, she would give personal trees, I guess like little mini trees. We're never really told how big they are, um, but just little personal trees to each patient and a gift to each patient. Wow. And what's significant is that the articles about her uh, work at Charity Hospital say that she gave gifts to all the wards at Charity Hospital. Other groups also gave gifts to charity, but they would specify that, well, they only get, they gave them to all the wards except the colored men's wards. You know, whereas Ada, on the other hand, gave them to all of the wards. So that's very significant in reading about her. Yes. She, she did not, I can't say that she was any kind of, um, you know, civil rights person by any means, but at least she made sure that everyone was taken care of. And she, um, so that she started that work around 19, I guess it would have been probably 1910-ish, somewhere in there. And her mother helped her the first few years that she did it. Uh, so each person got a little treaty and a gift. But then she also, starting about 1911, um, organized a large community Christmas tree. She saw some children and, uh, from Douglas Island, which is, you know, in the downtown area. Um, and apparently most of the people who lived on Douglas Island were extremely poor. And she saw some of these children from Douglas Island looking in the window of the Ray Dixon dealership. And they had apparently a large tree, and the children were ooing and aahing over it and wishing they could have that. And Ada was moved by that and decided that, you know, why can't these kids have a Christmas too? So she began organizing a community-wide event for indigent children. And she, up in the 1920s, she would have between one and 2,000 children attend this event every year. Wow. That, that, isn't that remarkable? And, and really do we is. know how long that she? How long did it did it did it continue after the Christmas trees and presents for the patients at Charity Hospital? Do we know that how long it continued afterwards, or did it after she died in 1933? Well, I don't know um, if the they kept giving the gifts to Charity Hospital in her name after 1933. I did find where I believe it was one of the Elks lodges was going to continue community Christmas event after her death. But I haven't found a lot about that. You know, sometimes sometimes people have great intentions and then they just don't pan out. And that was during the Great Depression as well. True. So um, it may be that donations had dried up a little bit. I'm not sure. Um, I, I haven't, like I said, I haven't run across anything um, that's popped out in my research. That's not to say it's not out there. So I just haven't run across it yet. Well, you, so, no, you, as far you, as I know, a lot of this largely stopped after after her. You also mentioned in this article you want help from our readers and, and radio listeners out there. You say there there's no pictures that have known to exist of the spectacular community Christmas tree organized by Ada. Wow. 
So not no. not that I've been able to find so far. Nothing between in the, the newspapers back then didn't really run photographs, I guess because of the cost. Now some of the larger markets would have photos, you know, in their paper, but I haven't really found photos in the Shreveport Times until really you get to the later thirties and into the nineteen forties. And if some of your listeners have found, you know, otherwise, please please let me know. Um, but no, I haven't found any photos of these Christmas events and they've gotta be out there. She had corporate sponsors that would help. Other members, you know, prominent members of the community that would help and different groups that would help contribute as well. Because, like, with the Christmas, the big community Christmas event, she would even have the children from Genevieve Orphanage come. She would have the resident, the elderly residents at the, what they just call it, the Shreveport Old Folks Home. She would have them come, and they would be giving gifts as well. And she went to um, meticulous planning to make sure that each child had exactly one toy some food and some nuts and she wanted to make sure that each child had an equal amount when they left so that nobody felt left out well was, so was, that, some, and, and was that some planning or what so so in so right. she, she was you know the christmas tree lady so wow isn't that amazing that, right that is that right is, and there's got to be pictures yeah. somebody probably sent somebody's photo album they're looking at this going what the heck is you know because we have photos like that from from family members that we look at and go, we don't know what this was. Nobody marked the back of yeah. it. So, you know, if people's got grandma, if they have their grandmother, great-grandmother, you know, photos, get those out and look through them. If they're, you know, from street boards, especially in the 1920s when it was real big. I'm sure and there's, see, I'm sure there's some out there, the Julie. And you mentioned oh, in the, sure. and, and you mentioned in, in the, um, in the article, you have a Facebook page, right? That's called In Search yes. of Ada. So those of you that might want to share your photos or personal stories or memories of Ada, uh, please help her out. It's collecting information. There's someone out there probably has some some interesting photos to share with with Julia that she will post on her website and continue the updating this particular make this this uh, Shreveport's forgotten hero more more known to all of us out there. So um, so how did she get involved in placing children for adoption? Well, she was working at um, doing you know charity work at Charity Hospital. And her story that she told to the Shreveport Journal was that she passed the laundry room one day and heard someone crying. And so she went in and found this teenage girl who apparently was pregnant and was very frightened, didn't know what to do. Now, Ada doesn't say how far along the girl was, um, but Ada told her, you know, made a promise to her that if you will finish getting your education, finish your schooling, I will help you place this child when they get home. And Ada did that, and allegedly without the girl's parents ever knowing about it. Whoa! Well, so that's how that's how she got started. And then it it blossomed a little bit, right? Right, and it probably just from word of mouth. But of course, Charity Hospital was kind of the forerunner to what she met. So that was people who didn't have money. That was where they went. It was a state-sanctioned hospital um, for for indigent people who needed health care, and. Um, she worked very closely um, with people there. If people needed clothes, she would help. She and her hospital guilds would help to find clothes for them. And, you know, if they needed, you know, food, she would help to gather those things um, for people. So she was she was very, um, very closely associated and very well known with the patients there. So you know, over time, you know, word of mouth, I imagine people were coming to her and asking, you know, can you help, you know, with the situation? We, we tend to think of teen pregnancy and unwed pregnancy as a modern issue but it really isn't and that's been one of the surprises in studying this very well written article i mean i i read it twice that it was so enlightening and you you just 
you want to put yourself back in those particular times in the in the early 1900s. I mean, this is wow. So so it began that she in, in really 19 what 13 uh, regarding that first trial that she placed, and then um, probably before then, probably I'm I'm thinking it was probably around 1910 1911. Really? Okay. So. So, weren't there other orphanages in the town in that area in that, during that era? Yes, there were other orphanages, and of course, then the most famous of them was the Genevieve Orphanage. But back in, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, orphanages really weren't set up to place children. They were basically established to care for the children. Oh, so, even the Genevieve okay. didn't have like an Right. I, I think we could sort of assume that they did everything. They, you know, they took the kids in and tried to find homes, but a lot of times they didn't. They they were not really a, a placement agency. Um, so Ada just sort of took that on herself. And I guess probably once she did the, the first child, you know, the, the teenager she ran across the charity that day, she began to see the need. And I would imagine, uh, word of mouth, people started coming to her. Um, of course, if you recall, um, from 1903 to 1917, we had a legal red light district in the Shreveport. And I imagine that's probably where quite a few of her first children came from. I don't have proof of that, but that's just that's my working theory. That's, that's pretty um, because, uh, pretty good assumptions there. And uh, Right. I thought, thought this was interesting that she tried her hand at being a girl's probation officer, right? Wow. She, she did. That lasted about six months. Um, I'm not sure why she resigned, if maybe she just didn't have time because she was having, you know, so many places come in, and plus her planning for their Christmas um, activities took up a good bit of the year. So maybe she just didn't have time. But her desire in signing on as a probation officer for delinquent girls was to keep them from winding up in the red light district or what they call the restricted area um, at the time. So... Yeah, she she had very good intentions with that, and she obviously had a heart for for these for these kids who were in crisis. Um, and just for whatever reason, that just didn't work out. Did she take only uh, just kids for for possible adoption? Yeah, I, primarily I think it was babies and small children. Um, we even know that there were some that you know they would surrender the babies as soon as um, the children were born. There were some children who were a little bit older whose parents were sick, you know, maybe the mom passed away and dad just really couldn't care for them. And so she was able to find homes for them. Uh, but yeah, it was, I haven't read anything that says she took in like teenagers, but she might have, you know, and I just haven't run across that yet. But she also opened up her home to, you know, women in crisis. And if, you know, um, a woman, her, there was a, a story in the late 20s about a man who was working on a farm around Shreveport who had gotten into some trouble with the law in another state before he married. Well, the law caught up with him when after he married and had a child and was living in street court. And so he was taken away and extradited, and it left the wife and child just, you know, with nothing. So oh. Ada took in that wife and child until um, they could, I guess, get money and, and go stay with relatives or, or get on their feet somehow. So, so she took in um, a very women caring person. As well as the oh, court. wow. You know, that's, that's remarkable that you know, she did all this charity work and probably. Didn't didn't raise didn't raise too much flags on bragging about it, or she she didn't want to do that any probably anyway. So it's totally well, remarkable. It, she was, it was known. I mean, it was it was in the paper, and she you know, she had all these connections from her dad having been mayor and a very prominent citizen. And I think she used those connections. She 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 knew how to network, and she used that network to to the advantage of others. So so, what I'm reading in your article, she must have had a lot of babies. 
that were that were from underage or unwed mothers that uh, that she she placed. It seemed like to me that probably more babies right. than anything, right? That, that's the impression I'm given. Um, but again, some of them were apparently with her, um, or she found temporary housing for them for a few years, even before they found permanent homes. So, and, and when she would get a baby, like from charity, you know, um, maybe the mother died, or again, it was an un- unplanned pregnancy, um, she would actually work with the doctors at charity to nurse the child back to health until the child was. Um, at a level of health where she felt like she could place them in a permanent home. You know, back then, uh, in the progressive, she was a part of the progressive era where they wanted to do, you know, best practices for everything. And, of course, what they considered best may not be what we considered best, but, you know, it, it was the best thing you had to do at the time. And one thing that they emphasized in placing children for adoption was that they needed to be healthy and they needed to um, go through a careful screening process. And so they didn't, nowadays, I don't think we would think twice about you know, seeing a child being placed who has some physical or, or mental issues. But back then, they were very careful to make sure the children were as healthy as possible before mm. they placed them. Well, that's, that's really considerate. So where did she find these couples that wanted to adopt? I mean, what did they... Well, one way was she advertised in the paper, <laughs> which is surprising. And I don't I don't think we would um, find that conscionable today to say, oh, a blue-eyed blonde, you need, the, a, you know, need parents. But as I think we featured one of them in, in the article in, in your magazine. Obviously, we just flat out advertised, and then people would contact her if they were interested in adopting. But, but I, again, she screened people. It wasn't like you just I called and said, hey, I need a kid. You send them over, you know. Yes, the, the screening, yeah, was, the, the the vetting, or probably they didn't use the word back then, but the screening probably was re- remarkable at that time. I, I seriously doubt that others may did as much screening as she did, right? Well, possibly, and one reason she never associated with any agency or organization was because she felt like she could do it more thoroughly and more efficiently than an organization or an agency could. Again, she was a very independent woman, but she would personally interview the prospective parents, and she would ask for references. She wanted references from the husband's employer. She wanted references from their banker and from their pastor. So she, she, she scrutinized the couples very closely before she just placed a child. Because back then, too, her, she and other um, people like her in other towns who placed children for adoption, they tried to be careful that the child wasn't being adopted to be a servant because that was actually a little more common, you know, back then. But people would go, oh, yeah, we want to adopt a kid. But what they really wanted was a babysitter for their younger children. Oh. So she tried to be careful that they were adopting for the right reasons. Okay. Good interviewing skills. This is definitely... That, that's so. In your research, you saw some of these t- tendencies, or how did you, how did you determine some of these things? We you don't have an um, you know, her personal interview, but she had some of her her comments that were in the paper and other other documents. So how did you how did you right. discern some of these uh, aspects that you're mentioning? Well, again, I have the great fortune that she was in the paper frequently. Um, newspapers.com is my best best friend, and if anybody wants an inexpensive hobby. <laughs> a great fun read. Ten dollars a month or less than, and you can have access to to all these old newspapers. You know, um, some some of the larger newspapers outside of Shreveport aren't in there, but the Times Picayune is in there from New Orleans, the Shreveport Times, now the Shreveport Journal. Uh, very fortunately for me, because it saved me a lot of research on microfilm, which I can't stand. Oh, yeah, um, so back in the old days, the microfilm's these, terrible. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no, and. So, yes, newspapers.com has been my, my greatest asset in researching her because she was frequently written about. 
and Maude Hernopry in the Shreveport Journal was apparently a good friend of hers and a great admirer of Ada's. And she wrote extensively and in detail about Ada and her adoption procedures and about her Christmas events. So um, I'm not a big fan of O'Pry <laughs> for other reasons, but I do owe her a debt um, for the detail with which she wrote about Ada. So you say in your article, we, you don't. There's no way to know that she probably had placed over 2,000 children during her lifetime. That's remarkable. Even if that number is wrong, I mean, 2,000 is a lot for one right. lady and for one fine lady to do this on her own with no staff, probably doing it all herself. She, she was probably working. I mean, in this project, uh, day in and day out. Right. She. That's one thing the newspaper articles are clear about with her is that if there was someone who needed her in the middle of the night, she was there. You know, um, it, it was it was around the clock job for her. Um, but now, there's no real way to prove. Uh, now, a lot of adoption records, even from back in the teens and twenties, are sealed. Really? But some adoptions. How, how long are they yeah. sealed? I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, I read read that in the article. Uh, permanently, I guess. Huh. I permanently, I guess. I I haven't. That's part of the research I haven't um, finished yet in terms of, you know, the laws for back then versus now. But some adoptions were actually recorded in the property record. Oh. And, again, I haven't, I haven't determined what the difference is as to why property records versus sealed adoption records could have been the request of the parents, maybe the birth parents or the adoptive parents. I'm not sure. But even those in the property records, a lot of times just refer to people by their initials in terms of the birth parents. And then you'll have maybe the adoptive parents who are named as parties. Hmm. Um, but, but the search, um, like if you go to the courthouse and do a property record search, it's only going to give you the names of the parties. Ada was listed within the body of the document, and there's no real way that I found so far to search for just like random terms or names within a, a property record like that. So without that capability, there is no real way to know, you know, how many adoptions she actually facilitated. Um, so we have to just take her and her friends at their word at this point that, that it was around 2000. Well, the, the thing about it is, Julie, there's some people in here who may not know that they have their uh, one of their relatives is one of these adopted children, right? They they stayed right. probably I mean, stayed they, in the area. They will never know that she she was the one that placed these individuals under uh, little kids under adoption, and they'll never know. Uh, the rest of the story there. Isn't that amazing? Exactly. But now she did keep up with some children. In fact, there is the story of, of one family. The adoptive parents named their adopted son. His middle name is Delay in honor of Ada. So there were some families that she kept up with and, um, you know, knew that she had placed the child. I did run across um, about a year, year and a half ago, um, a board, it's like a message board online where people post, I'm searching for my parents or I'm searching for my child, you know, who were, you know, families, adopted families. And I ran across a lady who had posted on behalf of her grandmother who was born at Charity Hospital in 1929. And they knew that Ada had placed the grandmother, um, you know, with her family. But by the time I got in touch with the granddaughter, um, I made contact with her once and told her I'm going to look and see what I can find. I did search through charity hospital records at um, the Northwest Louisiana Archives at LSUS, but I couldn't find the month that the grandmother was born. I don't know if it was written in a different ledger or what happened. It wasn't torn out. But as fate would have it, I couldn't find the grandmother's oh. you know, birth month. So it was really, really, really tragic. 
And what was surprising was how vague the records were back then. It would just say, you know, problem, pregnancy, results, results. And that's all it would say. <laughs> I, was, I was really surprised at how general their medical records were about that. A little frightening, in fact. But I couldn't find anything. And I made, tried to make contact with the granddaughter again, and I didn't hear back from her. So I don't know if email addresses changed or if her grandmother has since passed away because she'd be over 90 now. Yeah, and that's, and that's the other sad part about this is that the people who do remember Ada, they're, they're very few and far between now who would have lived during her time. Yes, that, that is true. And hopefully this legacy and this information can be passed down that we'll know a little bit more about it. But you, you, you've started it, and I think you've got a lot of people throughout our area that's quite interested in this particular topic. I mean, you, I sent you a few emails, and I know Tina's got some, and I know hopefully people have been visiting. Your, her Facebook page is called uh, In Search of Ada, A-D-A-H, In Search of Ada. So you can share your photos, your stories, and any other memories about uh, the past of Ada. So it, you know, I'm going to definitely help you there. Also, you can visit her Facebook page. is called In Search of Ada, A-D-A-H, In Search of Ada. So share your photos, uh, personal stories, or comments uh, with Julie about this article, as well as if you if you want to, you can email us at thebestoftimesnews.com. Uh, so thank you, Julie, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. This is fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, you're giving us a little, I love this word, lanyap, you're giving us a little bit extra in there. What, were there other, did you find examples of other people placing kids in the area? Was she the only one? Well, in terms of Shreveport, um, as far as I know, she was a Shreveport, that, like North Louisiana. She was the only one that I'm aware of. Um, now, outside of Shreveport, um, in Fort Worth, you had Edna Gladney, who is the namesake for the Gladney Adoption Center in Fort Worth. And I just did a paper on her earlier this year. And the similarities between Edna and Ada are just incredible. They both were started off um, almost the same way, where they just sort of accidentally happened upon somebody to help, and it got started from there. big difference was that Edna Gladney in Fort Worth worked with an agency, and so I think that's one reason why she, her name um, stuck, and she was able to work with this agency for so long, Where and she was younger, too, so she lived a lot longer than Ada, uh, whereas, again, Ada was independent, did everything on her own, and so after she died and her friends passed away, her Ada's um, legacy in Shreveport was kind of forgotten. Hmm. Well, and the other thing, there might, there might have been a reason why Ada did not want to utilize agencies in the area. She probably didn't feel that they were screening them as much as she could do it, right? Probably probably one of those yeah, scenarios. She, right, and she felt like she was, I think, more efficient, like she could do it more quickly than what an agency would. You know, red tape was a thing even back then, you know, with, with government agencies. And so she, she felt like she could get it, you know, basically get in and get it done. Wow. Oh. And she was confident, and she didn't want to go the red tape. Sometimes these agencies had to do, go through a lot of red tape. So did did you see of any problems uh, that she had in, in placing any of these kids? The biggest problem I found at, that we're told about anyway was in about 1924, 1925, birth parents who had placed their newborn son with her um, came back when the child was about two and decided they wanted the child back. And Ada had already placed the child for adoption. Well, the parents, the birth parents, yeah, the birth parents claimed, and this is actually not uncommon. I found this with Edna Gladney in Fort Worth, too, that she encountered this several times where people changed their minds. So far, this is the only case that I've run across with Ada specifically in Shreveport. And the parents 
they claimed that, well, we just wanted you to foster the child, and we were sending you money, you know, periodically. And Ada said, no, you signed papers saying that you didn't want the child back, and you didn't send me money, and no, you never came to visit. So there was this back and forth, and they sued Ada in court to find out the name of the adoptive parent, because Ada didn't want to tell them. Ada was like, oh, no, the child's in Canada, you know, you know, you just need to move on. And turns out the child was, like, in Belcher, <laughs> so he was adoptive parent. So um, the birth parents won against Ada. She had to divulge the name of the birth, uh, the adoptive parents, and then the birth parents sued to get custody. Now, as to how successful they were, I don't know, because, you know, sometimes the newspapers, they'll start on a story, and then they never <laughs> finish it down the road. So that happened back then, too. Um, I do have a colleague in uh, my master's program who was going to do the research for me, because, like I said, I moved to Dallas first year, didn't have an opportunity before I moved to travel to Belcher to go through the report records because again, microfilm, and he was going to do that for me, but then quarantine hit and so we haven't gotten back there, so I'm hoping that some more research I still have to do yet is to get my hands on those those records and find out what happened. Yeah, so that would be an interesting follow-up to it. So, uh, do we know there's any descendants of Ada living? No, she never had any children of her own, and she was busy taking care of everybody else's. And she had a, she did have one sibling. She had a younger brother named Alan. He was four years her junior. And he never had any children either. He was only oh. married for a couple of years and then he divorced. And, um, there was a stepson. But I, and information on Alan is not as, um, prolific as information on Ada because he wasn't, he wasn't the town darling that his sister was. He worked at the Grand Opera House though for years, hmm. uh, which is very interesting. Um, and he died in, in a nursing home in 1941, and that's about the extent of what I know about him. So he's kind of a side issue, a side you know, research topic that I'm pursuing as well, uh, just to kind of fill in some of those blanks. But I do know that they lived together um, a long time. They they shared a residence for many years, he and Ada did. What, what about her, her husband in 1900, um, uh, Mr. DeLay? He passed away. Did he, did he have any brothers and sisters? Uh, probably from up north, you I said. think he did. But you said right, in Wisconsin. And that's a, that's that's another way which we talk about in the history department. It, it's about, about chasing rabbits or running down rabbit holes where you find all these little side topics you have to, to chase for a while and see where they go. And that's a rabbit I haven't chased yet is I've got to contact somebody. I think he was from Milwaukee, so I need to contact, you know, somebody from where his hometown up there in Wisconsin to see if there are any archives on his family anywhere or any descendants of, of his siblings. So that's just, like I said, one of those. Yeah, the little topic rest, I haven't to things that things that do to keep doing the research, and her mother might have had other siblings as well, right? Her mother on her mother's yeah. side, her, on her mother's side, right? Yeah, and she was originally from Tennessee, I believe. So again, that's this kind of you know finding the right towns and the right um, archives and the right you know receptacles of information to to research. Why, in your opinion, do you think Shreveport forgot about her? I really don't know. Except for like a handful of historians. And of course, now she was a founding member of the Daughters of the Confederacy, which I realize nowadays is not a popular topic, but it's a fact. Um, So we have to look at it. And they kept her memory alive. And in fact, they're the ones who placed her tombstone on her grave because she died deeply in death. Um, Mm. So the UDC has kept her memory alive. And um, some historians like Eric Brock and then, of course, um, Dr. Joyner and Dr. White, they've They've also written about her and one or two other local historians, but never more than just like an article here and there. So this is, I think, my research, as far as I can tell, is the first broad spectrum, wide, trying to be comprehensive, 
you know, research project about her. So her, her, um, leg- her, her legacy died with her in a way, huh? Pretty, pretty much. And I think it's because she wasn't affiliated with a larger organization, like someone like Edna Glavian or, other, you know, ladies who do this in other towns. Um, so I, I, I don't think it was intentional that she was forgotten. I think it's just, you know, time marched on and, and just kind of marched on without her. And she probably gave so much away. That's, that's why she ended up in 1933 at death, that, that she was in, uh, in debt. It's so sad that she... You've thought of more of others than herself, which is a wonderful, right, exactly. wonderful thing. But uh, you know, I, I was reading as you said that the the, the marker uh, there was there was no funds for even a marker on her grave until what 1995. Wow, that's correct. It's a, a long time after 1933. <laughs> right, exactly. Amazing, but at least at least they did that. I compliment I compliment the uh, the the individuals who did that at Oakland Cemetery that. Uh, yeah, we're we're greatly in debt. She definitely helped a lot of a lot of people, a lot of lives in the area. I mean, it, without her, don't know what would happen to those kids and in, uh, in, in the area, right? So right, uh, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of her goal was to keep kids from winding up on the street, and that was a lot of the goal was with women who were students of the Progressive Era. Their their goal was to help make um, good citizens out of children born into difficult situations. And you know, teach them uh, Christian values and American values and that sort of thing. So there, there was a heart for to these children, I think, to begin with, and then also I think that greater uh, sense of this was her duty, you know, to to her country and to her church to to help these children. Well, I want to compliment you about the magazine and your continued research. That's that's very impressive. So again, I'm going to mention Julie Stackhouse's Facebook page is called In Search of Ada. So share your stories and photos and information that you have about Ada. And she's collecting more information, and hopefully you can have, give her some leads about some relatives or current people that that may be in the area that were uh, descendants of these particular 2,000 plus adopted children. Uh, in, during her lifetime, that would be awesome. I, I do want to give you another plug. Make sure if you have time to to read her article that appeared in the November 2019 issue of the Best of Times. You can go online, bestoftimesnews.com, and uh, you can uh, read that article, which is fascinating. By the way, I distributed uh, about 300 or 400, 500 copies at YMCA in Shreveport, and they were all picked up in one day. They called oh, wow. and said, "They called and said, do you have any more?'" And I says, "Well, I have to go pull some from below locations, but I sent them like a mini stacks of them, and they were gone. People were amazed. Oh, that's by exciting. It. They were they were very amazed by this article. The article is more than recreation. The YMC and the early American war relief, and it, we're talking about uh, many Civil War, right? In the Civil War, right? Era. Civil War through World War One. And that's, that is, a lot of people will not aware of that as well. So thank you for listening to our show. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of The Best of Times at one of our 270 distribution locations. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to our show. I'm Gary Caligas wishing you and yours the best of times both today and every day. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on 1017 FM and 710 Kiel. Be sure to tune in next Saturday at 9 a.m. for more Best of Times. This is 1017 FM and 710 Kiel.